Well, it's been for us refreshing, very much so, to be able to fellowship with you. I've listened to uh, the testimonies that have, have been, uh, and we feel exactly the same. Uh, I only wish uh, it was raining up home. <laughs> I have thought, where do I go? Because Revelation is so big. So I have decided just to lay a systematic beginning. You will build on it. So I've decided just to step through, instead of taking Daniel and all that goes with it and combining it with Revelation, I've decided that we would just start at the beginning of the book of Revelation. All right, so take your Bibles. We're going to read from Revelation 1 and verses 1 to 3 to start with. Revelation 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel unto his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Let's bow in prayer before we come to the word of God. Father, it is a privilege in our part to open up your precious word of truth and read the words that you have recorded here because you have said, Blessed is he that reads it. Lord, it is an immense privilege to be in the presence of a holy God, to open up the book which he has inspired by his Holy Spirit, and to open up our hearts and our minds to receive truth from your hand. Minister into each of our lives, we pray. By the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our understanding. Shine in, Lord, and give us a glimpse of your glory so we may reflect who you are by the very lives we live. Commit our time to you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm going to commence right at the beginning here <coughs> and I've put up on the board the key to the book lies in the first little phrase of that book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as has already been brought out this morning, the whole object of the scriptures we have, he is the message. Remember I took you to John 5 and Jesus said, you search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, 
they are they which testify of me and you will not come to me so you can have life. And I've put up there from Revelation 19, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is the breath, it is the very life of prophecy. So when Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus, and remember Cleopas was walking there, with probably his wife, and this stranger came, and asked the question, why are your faces downcast? Why are you sad? And they said, are you a stranger? Don't you know the things that have gone on in Jerusalem? He said, what things? They said, this Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and we believed he would have delivered Israel. And it's the third day. They, he told them what happened to him. And he said, our women went, the tomb was empty, but they never saw him. He said, you fool." you slow of heart to believe all, all the prophets have said, did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He began at Moses, the first five books, then all the prophets, and expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So who did they see? It's him, it's him. It's him. And we never saw it before. Their eyes were enlightened. Didn't our hearts burn in us as he opened up to us the scriptures? If that doesn't happen when you step to the Old Testament, we've got the wrong message. And if it doesn't happen when you step into the book of Revelation, we've got the wrong message for Revelation. He is to be the object and centre of all that we see in this book because the key lies in those first few words, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going to see him. So we must ask the question immediately when we come to this book, where do we see him? Where he is prominently outlined to us in this book. If that is the meaning, I put up the word apocalypsis up there, because in the media today, it's an apocalyptic event. They got it from this word, all right? And in some Bibles, the, this book is called Apocalypse. <laughs> All right? So the world is thinking apocalyptically. We Christians ought to be thinking apocalyptically. <laughs> this is the book. This is Apocalypse. This is the unveiling. This is where we will see him. So the question we ask, where do, do we see Christ so prominently set forth in the book? There are three distinct places where we see him. I've listed up three there. And when we come to these three places, there are four questions that can be asked of each time we see him. They are these. Where is he? What is he like? What is he called? And what is he doing? He is the central personage we are looking for. Where is he? What is he like? What is he called and what is he doing? Four questions will open out the text we are going to look at. So I've put up there, as we go through the book of Revelation, there are three distinct places where he prominently is clearly set out before us as nowhere else in this book. The first one is in Revelation 1. You can go across to it. We're going to read it through. It'll be on the screen if you've got your Bible from Revelation 1. And it, it's, uh, I think, 
put in the verses, yeah, 10 to 19. I don't think 19 is one, but nevertheless. All right. We'll read from verse 9. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And I haven't put in verse 19. Write, therefore. <laughs> it's all based on this, do you see? Write, therefore. So we have in the scripture outline for us this scene. The scene is presented to us and the first question we must ask where is Christ? What is your answer from the text? You can have two answers. Where is Christ? So he's in the midst of the lampstand. That's how he appears. He wanted to see, the voice came, he wanted to see who is it that is speaking. He turns, he doesn't see Christ, he sees seven lampstands. Then in the midst, he see, gives a complete description of Christ. There's a bigger question. Where is he? On earth or in heaven? This is a serious question. <laughs> this must be, because this will be the question we have at every appearance we see him. Where is he? On earth or in heaven? Because John is where? On earth. He's on the Isle of Patmos. So if he sees Christ, where is Christ? On earth or in heaven? He is on earth. Tell me, is Christ in the midst of the church or not? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It's his church. 
He indwells this body of His. It's the life. The head is the direction and it's connected to the body. The earth, the church is testifying on earth. Isn't it? We are the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then he said, you are the light of the world. What light has the world got today? It's the church. It is not Israel. It is the church. So we are shining in the world today. But we are not alone. He is with us. I will never leave you I will never forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not fear what man will do to me. If ever there was a need to understand this, it's in some of the countries of our world today. So we understand when John sees him here, it's on earth because that is where the church is. Tell me, is he in our midst this morning? He is. So when you come to this here, John hears a voice, turns, and he sees the seven lampstands, and then he sees the personage in the midst of the lampstands. Please notice your wording, because I have said it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words you've seen them on the screen, but note from verse 12. I turned round to see the voice. (laughs) You don't look to see a voice. (laughs) You look to see how the voice originated, (laughs) don't you? It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven lampstands and among the lampstands, and here is a full description of what hit John head on. Something he could not bear because he fell as though dead. Now remember this. Of all the disciples, there was none closer in personal relationship to Jesus than John. He leaned on his bosom at the Last Supper. He was in intimate fellowship with the Son of God the Son of Man on earth. But at this point, he cannot stand the sight. It's so powerful and we all, we read it, but we don't see the power of sinless, glorified purity and he is here a man in the flesh and this is God glorified, appearing to him. He can't stand it. And John has known the most intimate fellowship with this personage when he was in a flesh and blood body. But now he is the glorified Son of God and he can't stand the sight. He falls as though dead. And he gives a description and notice the wording. Let it hit you like it hits me. It says, verse 13, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Let me say this. There are over 500 references estimated in the book of Revelation from all the other books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is shone into the book of Revelation. There's never one quote given. Like you will read others in the Psalms, it says this, uh, and it quotes 
but there's not one quote mentioned, but they are there. So the Holy Spirit has drawn on the whole of the rest of Scripture and put it all together in this last revelation, the consummation of all things, he's put it all together and he pulls out one like a son of man. Where's that taken from? Daniel. So he's drawing out and his description, here is one like a son of man, the same personage that appeared in the furnace. So you have him here like this before John. And it says this. <coughs> Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. As you go through, underline. His feet, his eyes, his mouth. It's all him, 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 him. Do you get the picture? He is in absolute focus to John. He's the only personage and this is his description. It's his feet, his chest, his head, his hair, his eyes, and again his feet, his right hand, his face. So the whole focus is on this brilliant personage and when he sees it, he takes in what he's seeing but his effect is he's face down he, is, he has no strength left in him, as though he's dead. There is a perfect parallel between Daniel and John repeatedly in your Bible. Because that was the effect that Daniel said, my strength and my comeliness, I have none left. And that's only with Gabriel. Here is Jesus in his glorified personage, and he as though dead on the ground. We don't grasp it until we know the presence and moving of the Holy Spirit in reality. Until we sense and see as God really is, do we feel the effects on ourselves and all my strength has turned to nothing. That is the effect of a revelation of who Jesus really is on our spirit and being. Rare is that in the sense of personal experience. You get glimpses of it in your Bible and they are glimpses given with a purpose every time. Here we see John because he is about to unveil in the last book of the Bible the last scripture that consummates the whole history of our world, he is about to be given the responsibility to hear, to see, and to write it, and to send it. So here is an immense message which you know as well as I know has been greatly neglected in the church. It has taken me years to sit in a church where I ever heard very much at all from this book. And isn't that true? A neglected book, a book that was put to one side. And I guess the thing that has forced me more than anything else is because I have been in the Pacific, Seventh-day Adventists have taken advantage of the church's position and pushed Daniel and Revelation. 
with their interpretation and have created immense chaos in Papua New Guinea, in the Solomons, in Fiji and in Vanuatu, which are the ones I am constantly in contact with. And it forced me to go into the scriptures and having been forced that way, I realise how much we have neglected and how much light we have really lost because we didn't give ourselves to the word of God. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. It was necessary the whole counsel of God be given. So when we come to this area here, he is central. The question is, this is what he's like. He's like a son of man. He's on earth. But he is dressed in a peculiar manner. There is a robe. It is hitched up. It's got a girdle around here. And he is free to move. Where is he moving? He's free to move. That's the sense of this robe that reaches down. And there's a girdle around here. And he is free to move because the robe reaches right down. But he is now going to move. Where is he moving? From candlestick to candlestick to candlestick. Why? Because in the Old Testament it was the responsibility of the high priest to trim the lamps that they shone as they should. He provided the oil. He trimmed the lamps every day. And twice it says, continually. They must shine continually. If that is the ministry of the Aaronic priesthood and, I, and, and, and Jesus is not of the order of the Aaronic priesthood, he is Melchizedek, but if that's the ministry and it shadows the ministry that Jesus will do himself, is Jesus going to trim the lamps? Is he going to make the light shine? Because that's how he's presented to us. He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. And so he's doing that. So he is on earth, he is like the Son of Man and a full description is given. He is um, he's doing, he's trimming the lamps. Now I've forgotten the other one. Old man's age. <laughs> Keep going down and you'll get them. What is he like? Keep going. Ah, what is he called? I've done that. Yeah. What is he doing? So here, right in this section of scripture, you're going to have to answer the question, am I seeing Christ in this section of scripture? I think you're going to have to answer yes. Because it's his, 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 his. It's a full description. You're seeing Christ. That's how John saw him. He is identifying the personage and he is identifying what he's doing. He is trimming the lamps. Why are there seven lampstands? What is the message of seven? Complete, finished and perfect. You are seeing a full expression of the history of the church and its testimony on earth. That's what you're seeing. You say, how is that? Listen carefully. We understand this. Israel 
is used by God to teach the church. We learn from Israel. We learn from her failures. Paul does it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. He takes four examples out of the wilderness and he says, these things were written. Don't do what they did. So he takes Israel repeatedly, things of Israel, to teach the church truths. When you come to Israel in your Bible, from the time of Abram on, God foretold Israel's history ahead, prophetically. Because when a deep sleep fell on Abraham, remember, a vision came to him, and God spoke to him and said, for 400 years, your people will be in a land not their own. And they will be slaves in that land, but at the end of 400 years, I will bring you out and I'll bring you into your own land. This is a complete history described. 400 years, you go know what happened tomorrow. The weather bureau can't even tell us often accurately what's going to happen tomorrow. Here is the Lord taking 400 years of history and outlining to Abraham clearly in the briefest of exact detail what lies ahead. And he constantly and continuously did this with Israel. When Moses is standing on the edge of the river Jordan, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 29, he tells them what they're going to do when they get into the land. And it's accurate. We've seen it fulfilled over 2,000 years, what he said to them there. But you get to Deuteronomy 30, 30, the chapter 30, and he tells them, but in the latter days I will gather you back into the land and I'll do better for you than in former times. And we are watching it happen. Tell me, that spans well over 2,000 years of history. Amazing. Why God foretold Israel's history. He is consistent. He did it with every prophet. The prophets would tell them what they're going to do. What they're doing is wrong. Repent, turn from it. Because if you don't, this will happen. The Babylonians came. And before that, the Assyrians. And the prophets would rise up and tell them, turn. But it would happen to them. And accurately, the prophets foretold and it took place and we know it as history. If God did that with Israel. Is it inconsistent to say he will do the same thing with the church? Will he leave us in darkness as the future of the church, its history? I don't believe so. I believe that when you step into this book here, the whole history of the church is given to us. And I would ask my students when we are, when we are, um, are looking at it, I'd say, tell me, seven churches. Seven means what? Complete, finished, perfect. So here's the full expression of the church. Tell me, which church do you know anything about? You've got seven names. You think of them. Ephesus? You know anything about Ephesus? You have a letter in the Bible from Paul. What's it called? Ephesians. That's to the Ephesus church. We are told how that church started. Acts 18, Acts 19. Twelve men when Paul came. And you've got Paul is three years in that church. 
Then you have Timothy who took over the pastoral care of that whole church. And you have one Timothy, you have two Timothy. When Paul is going to Jerusalem a final time, he calls for the elders of this church. And he tells them the future of the church. After my departure, this is what will happen. So you have a complete history as with no other church in your Bible. You can look at Colossae, you can look at Laodicea. No, no, you can look at uh, Thessalonians, you can look at um, the rest of the seven that Paul wrote his letters to. And you don't know, you, they're there. But when you come to the letters to the seven churches, the only one you know about is the first. And we would call it the apostolic age. This is the age of the apostles. You know what happened after that? You will have the suffering church. That's why there are catacombs in Rome. That's what happened. The terrible martyrs that took place in the church after the apostolic age. And you can go right through and if you have a broad view of church history, you will have a broad view of the whole of the church's testimony on earth. Now let me say it's a broad view because at the end of every letter he said, he that has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning, I learn from, and I'm meant to learn from every church. But, in the world in which I find myself now, one of those is going to speak to me very powerfully. And depending where you are in the earth today, in the body of Christ, there is a message in these churches that identify and give answers to the condition we find ourselves in now. So I will leave it there. I have not got time to touch the doctrinal issues, which I would love to, of Balaam, of the Nicolaitans, of Jezebel, and all that goes with it. Because I'm a teacher, I love the doctrinal issues. <laughs> but they're very prominent. They're there because what you believe is going to affect how you live. So it's very important, but I have to leave it. But what I'm saying is this. We have a full expression in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation of his dealings with those seven churches. And you and I are in history. Christ has been building his church the whole time. Its light is shining in the world. He's still in the midst. He's still trimming the lamp. He's still making it shine in this world. And he will never finish his task till the church's testimony is finished. But once it's finished, we've lost our opportunity. We have it now. But there is a time coming when the opportunity to shine will be over because we will not be here. We are going home. I... I, I, I um, I was just listening to the hymns and some of it, uh, you know, I've, I've sung before and, and the most, it's, it's, it's translated into Fijian, into Hindi, into all languages. Oh Lord my God, when I an awesome, uh, you know, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. Are you looking for that? What joy shall fill my heart? You know, and I thought, that's never hit me before. That that's, I've always looked at, yeah, he died for my sin and this kind of thing and so powerfully set forth. 
But when I, I read that, I, I was singing that this morning, I thought, yeah, when he shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, I thought, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Are you? That's what we're looking for. He's going to take us home. And I, I was teaching this before I came down here, uh, Daniel and Revelation, every once a week. And I thought, in my departure this last week, I thought, what should I leave them? How should I approach this whole issue? Then I said, I decided, I took them to the epistles and I asked questions. I said, tell me, all Paul's epistles, when he wrote them, were to the church, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and, and I'm a Gentile. So these seven churches, which we have from Romans through to Thessalonians, there are letters. What is the burden of those letters? What do you find? And I think the burden is summed up in the book of Thessalonians 1. Because you can't go past one chapter in the book of Thessalonians except it's pointing to his coming, the expectation, the looking forward to it, what it will mean, one of the most amazing texts is the one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. He said, those people around give testimony of what it means when we entered into among you. You changed. You are literally for the Corinthians. You're an epistle. You're read. You're known of all men. The effect of the gospel. He said, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Why? He has delivered us from the wrath to come. That's not the lake of fire. That is what's coming on the earth. And will you define the wrath of God? I'm sorry, you're going to have to deal with seven trumpets before you come to the seven bowls of God's wrath. That is the final completion of his wrath you're going to have to deal with seven trumpets. And the terrible devastation, literally, that's going to take on this earth. We hardly grasp what is going to happen in our world. Thank God for a Bible that tells me I am looking for His Son from heaven. He has delivered me from that wrath to come. I don't know about you. I don't know where you're at. But I trust the words of God. I will come again. I will receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. He is coming for his church. It's going to take us to be with himself. And it says, forever we will be with him. Wherever he goes, we're with him. Tell me, I'll let you ask this. I, I watched last night a video of a, of a wedding. True? Tell me, whoever got married, the bridegroom and the bride, and when it was over, the bridegroom went and left his bride behind. Have you ever seen a wedding like that? You don't expect it. When we come to Revelation 19... Who leaves heaven? The bridegroom. Doesn't he? You've just had the wedding. 
in Revelation 19, the beginning part, hallelujah, the marriage of the Lamb has come, his bride has made herself ready, you're having a marriage, but he leaves the wedding and where is he coming? Back to earth. He's riding a white horse. Where's the bride? We'll come to that. We'll leave it there and we'll come back. <laughs> Do you understand the first scene John is given because it's the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. The first thing, the whole scene is his dealings with the church. That's it. The next scene you will pick him up in your scriptures is Revelation 5. Take your Bible, turn to Revelation 5. By the way, when am I supposed to finish? Because my wife will then give me an indication and I'm going to... 12, what's the time now? All right, give me an indication when we're... Yeah, all right, so I know, because I never asked before. We're in Revelation 5. Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 8. Some of you have questioned why I use an NIV. I'm using a 1984 NIV because they changed a lot after that. The reason is this. All my students have NIV Bibles and they're study Bibles which I wish they didn't have because they take the footnotes as authority. All right, that's the way all students want an answer. Go to the footnotes. What do they say? Instead of thinking through the scripture before they get anything else, they go straight to the footnotes. And when I give exams, I tell them, if you answer by what's in the footnotes, you'll be marked wrong because sometimes it is wrong. Right? So you may wonder, some have asked, why do you use NIV? Well, I would normally, I was brought up on the King James, old King James, all right? But that's why I have an NIV. I must understand it and I will expose where I disagree. But, that's why I'm reading NIV. Is that all right? <laughs> They'll explain it. <laughs> Revelation 5, verse 1. This links us back to verse, uh, chapter 4, which is the throne, central message. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, it's full, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. From verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken it, the four living, four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You step into this area and again, if you will look carefully, you are looking at a description of him. 
aren't you? Questions, same four questions. Where is he? Where is this taking place? In heaven or on earth? So, some have got heaven, some are hesitant, not sure. How do you know it's in heaven? You must give me answers. I'm not saying you're wrong. There must be answers. If we ask questions like that, there must be biblical answer to the question. So in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, after this, a door was opened in heaven. John said, I saw a door open in heaven. And I've said this before, and if you grasp it, the immensity of it, Whenever heaven is open, something comes out or something goes in every time. So, when Jesus was baptised in water in the River Jordan, as he came up out of the water, what did John the Baptist see? Heaven was torn apart. The Spirit descended like a dove and rested on him because there's nothing offensive in him. He is holy, the Spirit is holy, and it just rested. And that was the sign. Upon the one you see the Spirit descending and remaining, nothing offensive in him. He's holy. He is the one. So you understand heaven's torn open. When Stephen was being stoned to death, what did he say? I see heaven open. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Why? Stephen's going in. John here in Revelation, he said, I saw a door open in heaven. Why? John, you're going in. Isn't it true? So John is going in. Why? He said, the voice I heard speaking to me from the candlestick, same voice, which is like the sound of a trumpet, said what? Come up here. That is emphatic and dogmatic. And the Bible says immediately in the next verse, instantly, immediately, I was in heaven. It was instantaneous. So he passes from heaven, from earth, into heaven. And from this point on, he sees the throne. Where's the throne? It is in heaven. So the description is of what surrounds that throne, who is on the throne, and details about that throne itself. And so you pass from chapter 4, the emphasis is the throne because there's sovereign control over the affairs of this world. And you pass to chapter 5 and it links the two together. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, there was a scroll and it's sealed. So instantly you pass and in this chapter you can go down through your verses, scroll, 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 scroll. The whole issue is a scroll. That's the whole issue. The problem, it's sealed. And no one can break the seals. No one is worthy to do it. And we find out there is only one worthy. And the reason he is worthy is he shed his blood. And we've remembered that this morning. The only reason he is worthy is he has shed his blood to redeem to God us sinners. 
makes him worthy to loose those seals. Not only us, but the Jewish people as well. We as Gentiles, we rejoice in a Redeemer who is not a Gentile. He's a Jew. And our whole salvation rests on a Jew. Our whole understanding of that Jew comes from a book written by Jews. And we want to replace them, we want to discard them and say they've got no more future with God. Reason is, we haven't read the book. Or we've misinterpreted what the book is saying. The church did not replace Israel permanently. Israel still has its future with God. And God save us from conceit and pride as Gentiles. Because if he can break off the natural branches and we are a, a wild olive vine, we were far off. And he can put us in so we partake of the root and fatness, which is your Old Testament, of that olive tree. If we can do that, he says, don't you think he can regraft the natural branches back in again? Be not high-minded, but fear. So I'm not going to not going to cover Revelation Romans 9, 10, and 11, which which is necessary. We understand, all right? Israel has a future. What we have here is this sealed scroll, and what you have in your text here, he, he, he. The focus is on this personage. What is he like? No, sorry, must answer first. Where is he? The only answer you can give: he is in heaven. Because you're at the throne, you're at, with the living creatures, you're with the elders, and John doesn't see him. John just sees the problem of the scroll. And the, the, the cry is, who's worthy? And John weeps and weeps. So we must understand, here's an intensity of sorrow expressed by the Apostle John who wrote... John's Gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and now is writing the book of Revelation. As it comes to him, he says, Write, John! And he comes to this point here, and he weeps and he weeps. Did John understand the seriousness of that book? He did. Otherwise, he would not have reacted. He just wept and he wept. This must be broken. The seals must be broken. There's no one to do it. And the elder says, Do not weep, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he's called. So you have a Jew. You have his descent. He belongs to the tribe of Judah. He is of the offspring of David, the root of Jesse. So immediately you have Old Testament scriptures shining onto the event. There will grow up out of the root of Je out of the stem of Jesse a root out of dry ground. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the sevenfold spirit is is described. Who is it? To it's prophetic. It's Jesus, and it's talking about his ministry and what he will do. When Jesus came the first time, 
the Spirit of God came on him. And remember I took you to Isaiah? And I took you to Isaiah, no, I didn't tell you, I took you to Luke 4. I didn't do Isaiah 61 as it is. When he had been filled with the Holy Spirit and tested as to his perfection, he came to his hometown Nazareth and he went into the synagogue as his custom was and they handed to him the scroll of Isaiah. It's not sealed. He just opened the scroll. He found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And he went through his ministry that lay ahead. He folded it up. He handed it back and he sat down. And he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Tell me, did he fulfill what he said? He did. That was his ministry, his earthly ministry in a flesh and blood body. He fulfilled it perfectly. And we hear the message, we are in the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of God's grace we are in. He closed up, he sat it down. Is there a ministry Jesus still has to accomplish? And there is. I will make your enemies your... Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There is a ministry he still has to accomplish. So we are in heaven. And before this throne that is in heaven, there are seven spirits. Or, if you've got a Bible, a literary, it is the sevenfold Holy Spirit, the attributes of his being. So the same Holy Spirit that anointed him to perform his ministry on earth, that was the power by which creation came into existence, because the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. It was Christ who spoke. It was the Father who planned it all. You get the Godhead operating to bring about a perfect creation. To in his earthly ministry, he is God in the flesh and God his Father, the Father sent him. The Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And the Spirit descended like a dove to equip him. So it was finally, he was anointed and it was through the eternal Spirit he offered himself without spot to God. He was dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything he did. And you can get it done by your flesh. Think again. Think again. That's why Romans 8 is there. Right. So we have him here. And now his next great ministry to bring about the reconciliation of his own people back to God. Literally, Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brethren. And the mechanism by which Joseph did it, he is going to do it. And I haven't got time to teach it. <laughs> All right? There's an immensity. But I'm sowing seed. You need to grasp it and you need to just go with it and realize there are immense pictures which we so often rarely touch on in their depth. We just glibly go over it as a story instead of grasping the immensity of it. 
So here he is here. The sevenfold Holy Spirit and seven horns. Horn in your Bible is power. It can refer to a king. The seven horns are seven kings. Seven mountains, seven kingdoms, whatever you like. Horn means power. So here you have this personage when John turns in the midst of the throne he sees not a lion he sees a lamb now they both start with L <laughs> but tell me if there is any difference between a lion and a lamb the nature is entirely different a lion is the king of the jungle he is, the, the, I'll give you some, take your Bible, turn to Proverbs 20 and verse 2. He is a lion. Remember, he is a lion. Proverbs 20 and verse 2. Think about what you're reading. I've got an NIV. I guess it's similar in yours. Mine says, oh, it's not, that doesn't matter. Look in the Bible. A king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. The king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. Where do you see that? You kings of the earth kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled just a little. I've exalted my son. I've set my son on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Son is speaking to the father. I will... No, the father is speaking to the son. I will declare the decree. No, the son is speaking to the father. <laughs> I'm going to get it right. Huh? Father to the Son. It's in Psalm 2. You better turn to it so you see it's there. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and we're down in verse 7. Yeah. It's the Father speaking to the Son. I will declare the decree, verse 7, Psalm 2. He said to me, you've got two people, two personages. One is speaking to the other. Do you realize that when you're going through the Psalms, you will often come to a conversation between the Father and the Son? And some amazing words pass between them in some of your Psalms. This is one of them. I will declare the decree. He said to me, what did he say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you, or today I've become your father, is how the NIV has it. What's he talking about? Today, that means a specific time. Today. When was that? I have become your father. I have begotten you. When was that? The only way you'll ever understand it is go to the rest of your Bible because Peter preached this and Paul preached it. Take your Bible turn. To, uh, yeah, we'll come back. To that. Take your Bible turn to Acts 13. 
because our question is, well, today, when is today? Or this day? So in Acts 13, going to Paul, and we're down in verse 32. Acts 13, verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us. This is the good news, the gospel. Their children, by raising up Jesus, so the whole focus is on the resurrection of Christ. And he says this, as it is written in the second psalm, please note, it's given to us, the second psalm. What did he say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you or I have become your father. Wasn't he his father before this? Wasn't he his father before this? Well, what's he talking about today? This day. That's a specific action on a specific timing, isn't it? This day I have begotten you. He is first begotten from the dead. There is not another person has risen with a glorified body. Christ is first fruits. The rest will follow. He is first. Do you realize the Jews do not celebrate that feast? The others, yes. We Christians recognize the feast of first fruits. It's the day after the Sabbath when the sheaf is, and a sheaf means the priest goes in, he, he sickles with a sickle, a cutting knife, he gathers it together, ties it, and so you've got a sheaf. He takes that sheaf into the presence of God and he waves it before the Lord, signifying resurrection. He waves it before the Lord. That is the sheaf. What's a sheaf mean? you only got to go to Joseph's dreams to understand what a sheaf means. A sheaf represents a person. Because Joseph told his brethren, my sheaf stood up and yours bowed down to me. And they said, you mean we're going to bow down to you? They interpret it. That sheaf represents me and I'm going to do this. So when this takes place, first day of the week, they take the sheaf and wave it in. We call it the feast of of first fruits, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those that are Christ at his coming. There is a harvest. He's the first fruits. We're waiting for the full harvest. Those that are Christ's at his coming. The same effect, rising from the dead. So when you come to this here, you are my son. Today I have begotten raised from the dead, his son. There is a man in the glory. The greatest mystery, there are only two great mysteries in our Bible. One is in Timothy, God was manifest in the flesh. God was. The other great mystery is the church, Ephesians 5. This is a great mystery, Paul says, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Two great mysteries in Scripture, things hidden in the heart of God which he has unveiled to us through the word of God. 
So we come to this immense action on a specific date. This day have I become your father, firstborn from the dead. If you're thinking about this, I'll go quick. Deuteronomy 20, uh, just listen to me, otherwise it takes time. Deuteronomy 21.17, there is an instance where a man had two wives and he, he uh, favoured one, but the firstborn son came from the unfavoured wife. And the ruling in God gave was this. Because he is firstborn, he must be given the double portion. He's firstborn. And not only that, when he's the firstborn, the Bible tells you he is the demonstration, or your King James, the beginning of his father's strength. Think it through. Christ is firstborn. He is the beginning of his father's strength. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power will raise you from the dead. That's what he's teaching. He's firstborn from the dead. So God had an immense teaching in firstborn. And you, you probably remember there's a double portion. We ask, why is he given a double portion? Firstborn, he has a responsibility. The family. Do you belong to the family? The firstborn has the responsibility to look after that family. He's bringing many sons to glory, Romans 8. He's bringing them to glory. It's his responsibility. Aren't you glad your, your life, your eternity is in the hands of another? He's firstborn from the dead. Really? All right. I've got five minutes. You have now seen two sections in, Re in, Revel in Revelation where Christ is clearly set forth. One is in the midst of the seven lampstands, the churches. The next scene we see him in his ministry is in heaven. And before him there is a problem. A sealed scroll is in his father's right hand we learn he is the only one worthy to break those seals. And we didn't read this. When he went to take it from his father's hand, now it's not man handing him a scroll now, he is taking it from his father. He has absolute right. He has committed all judgment unto the Son so all men should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He's committed all judgment to the Son. So here he has the right and he knows he has the right because he's the Lamb. He has overcome, he's conquered death, he's put away sin. He is the only one with the right to redeem. And we learnt that this morning for Ruth. So he has this right and he goes to take it. In the NIV, it's a little different in the translation to your others. As you go through, take your Bible, we'll go down in, in, in Revelation 5. <coughs> We're down in Revelation 5, verse 9. These are the elders and the angels 
they fall down before the Lamb. He's worthy of worship. And if they can worship him, and they didn't, the uh, four living creatures didn't have to be redeemed. They're elect holy angels. But they fall down at what they now understand. You know, angels long to look into the things that concern our salvation, to marvel at the grace of God that we should be saved. Preachers of the dust. So they fall down. They sing. And in the NIV, there are three labelled as songs. I'll give them to you in verse 9. It says in the NIV, and they sang a new song. You go down to verse 12. You might have sang in yours. Revelation 5, verse 12. In a loud voice, they sang. And we just, you, you sang, you sang. From this verse, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. What are they singing? This is it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Seven attributes for the Lamb. He's worthy. They're not a sinner singing. I heard the voice. I beheld, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 angels and thousands times that. So this does not include the fallen ones. These are the holy and elect angels, meaning 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million, and thousands times that, so you're in the American debt. <laughs> or you're in the universe with its stars. It's beyond our grasp, the creative power of our Jesus. He spoke and the whole angelic world came into existence. They do not have little babies. They're not little angels running around like this. They were created the original number and that is a massive creation on the first day of creation. So you're stepping into here. These whole vast multitude and don't let me understand it, it's, it's harmony. Every word of a choir of that size is distinctly heard by John. I don't know what heaven will be like, but I reckon it is difficult to grasp the absolute harmony where love is the currency principle. They sing and their whole worship is to the Lamb and they were not redeemed by His blood. What about us? What about us? You know what it says in the first song? Because the 24 elders are representative of both Israel and the church because there are 12 tribes and there are 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's 24. The only place you'll get 24 is in Revelation. The number 24 is only in Revelation. It's only mentioned distinctly about the elders, 24. So we've got to work out where do you get 24 from because there's nowhere else. The only way you get 24, we understand, is 2 times 12. So we're seeing this 
uh, these cry out and they sing and they say in their fight, you redeemed us and we shall reign on the earth and we shall reign, and I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, and we shall reign on the earth. So we look ahead and we look ahead and we understand we are passing through this life. We are on the earth. But he is coming back. And when he comes, we shall reign on the earth. They worshipped him. Worthy is the Lamb. This is our future. Tell me, do you rejoice you have been redeemed? And what have you been redeemed to? We shall reign on the earth. That's what the last verse in the last section says. Then finally you come to the... And it's in the NIV here. I don't think it's in yours. In Revelation 5, and we're down in verse 13. This amazing scene. Then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honour, glory and power forever and ever. There is no place in your Bible I can equate to this response to one action. He took the scroll and heaven exploded. As in no other place, you have three immense songs, three different groups, and finally he culminates everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth. He is worthy, worthy the Lamb. No wonder there are so many songs that have been so precious to the church recently. And some of them come from Ireland. <laughs> that sing and adore and bring to our understanding, worthy is this Lamb. You've remembered him this morning. The scriptures open him out. He is worthy, the only one worthy. And we give thanks to the Father for sending his Son so we could be part of the redeemed. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking as we were going through, and the words of a song came to me. You may not know it. I don't know. I'll give you the words. Loved, with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, you have taught me, it is so. What is your heart's relationship to this God? Is it that? He's loved you and he gave himself for you. It is our response to come to him and to accept what he's done for us Repent and receive forgiveness and have everlasting life because he redeemed by his blood. Your sin has been dealt with if you will believe what Christ has done. Amen? We will get to the horse next time, Revelation 19. <laughs>